0: On Jesus Christ. And we all say together, the church says... Amen. God is good. All the, time. All the time. God is good. Can we give God a shout of praise for the way that he's moving in our midst tonight? You know, as Simone shared at the very beginning of our service, uh, we decided to embark upon this kind of new journey of having Expectation Sunday, the first Sunday of every month. And the reason that we did that was because you know, we believe that the American church, in large part, the modern American church, operates in a very similar structure regardless of the church that you visit. There's a few songs, there's a sermon, there's a song at the end, sometimes there's communion. Here at Crossbridge we do it every Sunday. There's a giving or an offering, a welcome, some announcements, there's kind of a similar script. And, you know, I, I believe that what happens for us when we kind of follow the same trajectory is that we lose the anticipation and the expectation that we're meant to bring every Sunday. You see, Jesus gives us a promise, and that is that when we are gathered in his name, he's uniquely present. And when God is uniquely present, he wants to uniquely speak to us and encourage us or challenge us or give us clarity and vision, answer our questions that we've been bringing to him, settle the anxieties that we feel, but sometimes... We're so locked into the ritual of church or just are operating with, I know what's going to happen. I'm trying to find a few things maybe from the sermon or from worship that can encourage me so I have a good week this week. And we want to break that. We want to change the structure. We want to change some things around so that we might build that anticipation and expectation not just on the first Sunday of every month, but every single Sunday that we come to worship as God's people. And so something's going to happen tonight that's a little bit different uh, something that is, makes me a little bit nervous, but I think it's important because as God's people, we're meant to be engaged together in God's word. We say all the time here at Crossbridge that when we sit under God's word, when I'm delivering and sharing with you the sermon that God has prepared in my heart this week, it is not meant to be simply just a monologue where you listen and you take a few things. We're meant to practice and participate together. It's one of the reasons why on the Crossbridge Brickle app, we add all of those notes If you've downloaded the app, you know if you click on the notes section, there's all these notes so that you can engage and participate, go back throughout the week and jump into God's word on your own. And so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. In this section of the service where we're going to be sitting in the text in Mark chapter 14, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, or if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, click on the notes section And click on today's sermon, which is entitled, Wake Up, O Sleeper. You'll find all the text there as well. In this time together, we're going to have in the middle of this section, live Q&A. Okay? That should make you nervous as it makes me nervous. Okay? And I'm going to explain to you why. But here's the question that I want you to operate under and then send in your question. You can see on the screen behind me, there's going to be a text number Text, that's our text number. Now, let me tell you this off the, off the jump, okay? This text number does not have caller ID, okay? So you're like, I don't want to send in a question because then they're going to know it's me and they're going to think, no, no. I have no idea who it is. It's a completely anonymous number. So whatever you send in, it's anonymous and you're not going to be outed, you know, in any way, okay? But I want you to text in your questions of faith around these kind of two ideas. What doubts do you have about the Christian faith, or maybe about the Bible, about spirituality, or what causes you confusion? Maybe you come to church for the first time in a long time, or the first time ever tonight, or maybe you've been a Christian for decades, but what are some things that cause you confusion, that create a block maybe in your spiritual life and in your faith that cause you to feel spiritually asleep in these areas of your life? Okay, so what doubts do you have or what causes you confusion in your Christian faith, that's the number, make sure you put it in your phone, text it in, you have about 10 minutes until we're gonna pull out some questions and answer some of them together, okay? If you forget the number, it'll be back up later and if you are in the notes section on the app, it's there as well. So we are gonna be in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And I'm actually going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together, just this section of verses. Will you stand with me? Here's what Mark 14 says, starting in verse 42. It says, and they, this is the disciples and Jesus, they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? see my betrayer is at hand this is the word of the lord thanks be to god you may be seated so here's what's taking place in this passage we were in mark 14 last week if you were with us and jesus was in the upper room it's the last supper there was a lot that happens in that passage he tells peter that he's going to betray him three times peter says no way they're having other conversations around this passover meal He confirms in front of all the other disciples that Judas is the one that's going to betray him, and Judas rushes out immediately, and then Jesus institutes the first communion there with his disciples, and now they have left. Now they've left Jerusalem. They've gone just outside of the walls to the base of the Mount of Olives, this mountain or hill that kind of looks over Jerusalem. They're in this valley known as the Kidron Valley, and there is a garden there they're familiar with. They probably knew the owner. They've been there several times, most likely to pray or to kind of have some peace and quiet out of the the craziness that was Jerusalem. So they're in this garden, and Jesus says, I'm going to pray, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John and leaves the other disciples in one section of the garden. Now, this is common because you have the 12 disciples, but then you have the three Peter, James, and John. They have this place of priority with Jesus where he takes them to these unique and special encounters and experiences like we saw several weeks ago with the transfiguration. So he takes them a little bit farther into the garden and he shares something with them. Jesus, as he is fully God and fully man, he feels things fully as a human. He says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. He's feeling the agony and the pain and the sorrow of not only the betrayal that is about to happen, but the cross that he knows he's about to go to, which is not only a physical death, but it is the death and payment for the sins of God's people. He shares this with them, and he says, stay here. Remain here and keep watch. Now, what that means, keep watch, is not like, hey, go climb a tree and look out and see if you see anybody coming. What he's saying is, remain here and be watchful, spiritually, mindful of the moment. Keep watch over your soul. Keep watch over this sacred time. Jesus goes a little bit farther into the garden by himself and he prays. He asks God, you know, if you'll take this cup from me, this cup of judgment that I'm meant to drink, but Not my will, God the Father, but yours. Now, he comes back the first time. It's been one hour of Jesus praying, and the disciples are not remaining watchful. They're not awake at all. They're sleeping. He wakes them up, and then he says something very interesting to them. Look what it says in verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus says this Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus comes back from praying for one hour. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, the three, are not awake at all. They're sleeping. He wakes them up and he commands them not to stay awake to pray for him, but to stay awake and to pray for themselves to pray for the temptation that they are entering into and will enter into. And then he quotes here uh, this, this kind of connection with Psalm chapter 51, where he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, King David comes to God in prayer as well, and he asks God to restore the joy of his salvation and to uphold his willing spirit. So Jesus is here looking at the disciples who have fallen asleep after just one hour, And says that you need to be praying for your soul. You need to be praying for spiritual strength. Your spirit is willing. God has established this willing spirit in Peter, James, and John. Over the past three years as they've been walking with Jesus and learning from Jesus. We know their spirit is willing because Peter just said to Jesus, you're wrong about the fact that I'm going to deny you. The spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. There's spiritual confusion. They're not understanding the significance of the moment, and they are going to face temptation. And As we know, they're going to fall to temptation. So Jesus says to pray for yourself, that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus goes away the second time. He comes back. They're sleeping again. He goes back a third time and prays, and he comes back, and they're sleeping again. Now, I was thinking about this this week. What would cause Peter, James, and John on this night, of all nights, to fall asleep? I mean, the the spiritual significance of this moment is profound. They have just been in this expectation-breaking Passover meal with Judas is going to betray him, and Judas rushes out to go betray him, and Peter has been told he's going to deny him three times, and Peter's like, no way, and they're having this meal, and Jesus says, my body's going to be broken, and my blood is going to be shed, For the forgiveness of sins, all of this is happening, and they go into the garden. They're probably wondering, when is Judas going to come back? You would think that on any night, they would be awake, but they fall asleep. Have you ever had those moments where you're like really, really tired, or you're in a dead sleep, and then all of a sudden something happens, and you wake up immediately because you realize the significance of the moment? Like when you have an early flight, and you put your alarm on, like a couple alarms that you'll wake up, but you keep snoozing all of them, and then all of a sudden at one moment you realize... I've been snoozing this alarm for an hour, and my flight's in 45 minutes. And all of a sudden, you're dead asleep, but you're awake. Ever happened to you? You're, you don't need caffeine. You're ready to go. I'm just thinking, how are they not in that place in this moment? How are they not attuned and awake? You know, the text doesn't give us the answer, so we have to think about what it possibly could be. And I, I've been processing, and I think that Jesus gives us the hint here as he says that they're, they're falling into temptation, that their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. And I think that we see this because in just a moment when Judas is going to come and betray Jesus officially, and they're going to take Jesus into custody, all of the disciples, including Peter, James, and John, are going to run away and flee. And that is because they don't understand the weight of the moment. They still have spiritual confusion around Jesus. Peter has just told Jesus he's wrong. He's wrong. And they believe that they're going to be strong, that they're going to be able to withstand any temptation that comes, but they fail at that. They have this confusion about who Jesus is. They don't fully understand yet. And so they miss the spiritual significance and the sacredness of this moment. I was thinking about this. When you have spiritual confusion, it leads to spiritual weakness, but when you have spiritual clarity, it leads to spiritual strength. So when you have spiritual clarity about who, what you believe and who God is and the nature of your faith and the calling the purpose that God has for you, it gives you spiritual strength to do what Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to do, to pray that they might not give in to temptation. It gives you resolve to stand firm in the midst of temptation because you have spiritual clarity and spiritual strength. But when you're spiritually confused, it leads to spiritual weakness. And it opens up the door for temptation, for you to give in to temptation. Spiritual clarity is critical. Jesus says that the truth will set you free. That you'll live in freedom when you base your life upon the truth. Here's the problem. You and me are like Peter, James, and John. We may believe that the truth will set us free, but sometimes we are unclear of what is true. Peter, James, and John miss the truth of this moment. They miss the, the truth of Jesus' words. They don't wake up to the fact that they should be praying. That they may not fall into temptation, asking God to uphold their will, willing spirit. They miss it. and So this brings us to our questions together. Here's the intention tonight. The intention is not for you to text in questions because I'm a sage and I know all the answers, okay? Don't think that. You're going to be sorely disappointed if you think that's the case. But the reason that I want you to do this exercise, to text in some questions, if you haven't texted in yet, you can do it now, is because I believe it is important for us to think about what are those things that bring us spiritual confusion, What are those doubts that we have? What are those questions that we have that maybe we've never felt comfortable to share with a friend, with a family member, with our small group, let alone in church? Well, now you're sharing it in church, but don't worry, it's anonymous on the text. We're supposed to walk through these things. We're supposed to sharpen each other. We're supposed to process these questions together, and I want you to get them out so that we might process and have a little dialogue together. And so if you have texted in, go ahead and do so again. And we're going to try to walk through a few of these questions. And see, there's a lot of questions. Okay. And uh, and my hope is that if you texted in any of these questions tonight and you want further clarity, uh, please come talk to myself or Simone after the service. And uh, we'd love to set aside a time for a few of our leaders. We have people that are Uh, are really astute and uh, mature on certain topics as well. So we'd love to journey with you. This is an invitation for you to ask more questions, not just one time. So, okay, let me, some of these questions, I'm just going to, you know, I'm nervous about some of them. So let me, okay. Okay, here's a good question. Again, anonymous number. Okay, here's the question. It says, "Is God created humans to worship and glorify him? When we get to heaven, we will fall to our knees and worship him without end. Why does God need us to worship and glorify him? We were created to tell him how great he is. Were we created to tell him how great he is? This is a great question. Maybe you've asked this before. It centers around this idea. Okay, is God so... Let me put this in like kind of a negative spin. When you think about it this way, you're like, why does God need us to worship him? Why in the world would he need our praise and our worship? Is is he selfish for praise? Is he somehow angered when we are not praising him? And I think this is a really good question. There's a lot of ways that we could talk about this. But the thing I would say is that Two things. One is why we're created, why we're to worship God. Not only now, but eternally. So God in in and of himself is the greatest being in the world. He is the supreme being. He is the transcendent being. He is the creator being. And so when we, as his creation, worship anything other than him, we have misplaced worship. The reason that God is deserving of our worship For eternity without end is because it would be inappropriate for us to worship anything else because nothing is as valuable as as He is. That's idolatry when we worship anything other than God. The most valuable thing in the world is to be worshiped. Let me put that on like a human level. So, taking out the, the language of worship, but the person that you are supposed to show the most affection, the most love, and the most attention to in your life is your spouse. For those of you that will get married one day, that is also the case. It is to be your spouse because the uniqueness in the, of that union. And if you misplace your love and affection and attention to somebody else, that's inappropriate because there's a unique relationship. They should be the most valuable human for you to show that type of love and attention and affection to. Supreme, the best that you have, your whole self. That's why the Bible says that when you are married, you become one flesh. You're together uniquely. And so in the same way with God, who is the supreme being, we are to give him all of ourselves. It's why the, the, the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy, says it, it's the kind of the language of God's people, of how we're to worship him. It says we worship God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of what? Our strength. Everything that we have is meant to worship him because he's the supreme being. Now, here's the uniqueness about God. And a lot of these things, when we ask questions about God and his nature there's mystery. Now why did God create us to eternally worship him? I'm not God so I don't have the answer to that question, okay? But I will tell you this. It's not only because we're meant to worship him as a supreme being, but it's also for our joy. See, God has created us to enjoy him forever, to to be in relationship with him in a unique way that is so profound that it is greater than anything that we taste in this life that is pleasurable or joyful. And so our worship of God to without end eternally is not only for the praise of God as the supreme being and so therefore it's appropriate worship, but it's also for our joy. There's nothing in the world that could bring us more joy than to worship the very God who created us. And so God is essentially creating an eternity that is for our benefit because we are worshiping him, which brings the greatest amount of joy, more so than anything else we could put our time and attention and heart and strength to. And so I hope that helps a little bit. Um, Okay, This this is a really good question. Would you, what would you say to one who keeps sinning the same sin over and over and over? Grievous sin. But believes, but believes in God's love and wishes they did not have these evil desires. Can I still be saved? Wow. That is a great question. Um, let me answer it like this. We believe um, that there is one thing and one thing alone that saves you, and it has nothing to do with your morality. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with how, uh, how many times you sin or whether or not you have a repeated sin or the way that you judge your sin, right? When you write grievous sin, you are basing your sin that you are committing over and over again as worse than all other sins, And in some ways, it may have more consequences, and it it may be worse in the way that it affects you as well, and and maybe it harms another person. But the, the amount of sin that we have or the sins that we commit have nothing to do with your salvation. Jesus did not die so that you could perform for him and stop sinning and not commit the same sins over and over again. He died for your sins, meaning... The command of faith and the promise of faith is that anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Not anyone who believes in Jesus and then fixes themselves later and doesn't commit the same sins over and over again. It's anyone that believes in Jesus will be saved. So I want to tell you this, whoever texted this in, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, God gives you the gift of salvation freely. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited favor. You can't do anything. You can't mess it up. Your, your sins are not too big for God's grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who many of us read the Bible and we're like, he's unbelievable. And God did use him in unbelievable ways, and he was an unbelievable man. He talks about a thorn in his side, a sin in his life that is constantly poking him. And yet he's constantly giving it to God and seeking for change and repentance. And so let me tell you this. If you believe in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, the grace of God is extended to you, and you are saved. Now, on the second part of that question, which is how um, do I process that struggle, right, of, of sinning over and over and over again? It sounds like you have a willing spirit, but your flesh is weak. You're like Peter, James, and John in this passage. And many of us in the room, you're not alone on this. I would tell you a few things. One, I think that it is so important that you stay committed to God and you preach the gospel to yourself. That when you come to God in prayer, when you come to God in his word, when you read a devotional, if you get the YouVersion app, which is great, they have great devotionals on there as well, that you come to God knowing that he loves you. You don't come to God out of fear. You come knowing that he loves you and his grace is made available to you. And secondly, I would tell you that you need to be connected with someone that you can be honest with. Someone in the church, in a small group, find some way to connect to this community because we're meant to bear one another's burdens and carry one another's sins. Meaning we're actually meant to be vulnerable with one another and to say, hey, here's what I'm going through and here's what I struggle with. And and I really have a hard time not falling into this temptation and have a brother or a sister that can walk with you and pray with you and encourage you and, and seek to help you on that path of repentance So don't neglect the the power of being with God's people. But know that the grace of God is made available to you. It has nothing to do with how you act. It has to do with what Jesus did on the cross. I hope you know that. Okay. Let me, a bunch have come in. Okay, here's another good question on the same topic how do I know I'm not a lukewarm Christian? Hmm. Man, so this, that title, um, Lukewarm Christian, comes from the book of Revelation, where it speaks about one of the churches and how it's better to be hot or cold, uh, but, but God spits a lukewarm out of his mouth, and you're like, <laughs> I don't want to be lukewarm. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Like, hot or cold? I'd rather be, you know, hot as long as that's good and uh, not lukewarm. You know, that's a really interesting question. How do you know that you're not lukewarm? Um, I don't think our intention is to live with some kind of fear that we are lukewarm um, and that God is going to spit us out of his mouth uh, because we believe that we're saved again by the cross, and so he doesn't spit us out because we are struggling to engage with him. Uh, He loves us because of what Christ has done. But by the very fact of you asking that question, I would say that there's probably things in your life that you need to process. There's probably Christian disciplines that you might want to engage or people that you might want to share how you're feeling and what you're going through. You might want to be honest with God in prayer. You know, one of the things I love about the Psalms, and my encouragement to you would be to pray the Psalms. Pick, Start in Psalm chapter 1 and read Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3 every single day throughout the, until you get done with the book of Psalms. Because King David, who writes the majority of the Psalms, he is honest with God. He, a, a huge chunk of the psalms are psalms of lament. It, it's David being full of sorrow and struggling with what he's going through and, and struggling with why God is not intervening in certain ways and behaviors that he's engaging in. And so I would encourage you to pray the psalms and bring those as prayers to God. But also to kind of dig a little bit deeper under the surface of that question. What it, why, how do I know I'm not lukewarm? I would say that is there something in your life that you feel as if you need to engage that you've neglected? Is it prayer? Is it reading God's word? Is it gathering with God's people? Is it getting deeper with God's people? Maybe you you don't have anything that jumps off the map, but maybe if you just come to God in prayer. I believe that if you come to God in prayer and you ask for wisdom and you do not doubt, this is James chapter 1, that he will give it to you. That if you come to him in prayer and you don't doubt and you believe that God is going to answer your prayer, he's going to show you wisdom. So come to him and say, God, I feel like maybe I'm lukewarm. I don't want to be. I have a willing spirit. But will you show me maybe a place that I can engage you more, engage your people? And, And I think he'll show you. I really do believe that. Okay. Um... Why, as Christians, are we constantly told, think like Jesus, or, or what would Jesus do? Who's got the bracelet? Throw it up. You have the mind of Christ, etc. so think like him. What should that thought process look like? Okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's good. That's a lot. Why, as Christians, are we constantly told to think like Jesus, or what would Jesus do? You have the mind of Christ, etc. so think like him. What should that process, thought process look like? This is a great question, and we maybe we'll bring it up again uh, in two nights at our, our event at the table, formerly known as Team Night, uh, because it would be good to dialogue on this question with you all. But I think that, you know, one of the things that is, is, is interesting about the Christian faith is that we believe that when you come to faith in God, when you believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's not only that God extends his grace to you and you are saved, but it's also that you are united to Christ. The Holy Spirit who invades your life and changes your life and your your mind and your thoughts and your desires, and eventually you will see your behaviors as well. The Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. In fact, the Holy Spirit is often called the Spirit of Christ. There's other ways of titling the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And I tell you that because I think that you know, there's two ways. One of the ways that you have the mind of Christ, and you think like Christ, and you maybe, though it may be kind of corny now, but what would Jesus do? And you have the bracelet, and you think about that, is you just read about Jesus. And you process in his word, how did Jesus live? How did he engage people? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus think? How did he engage people? But secondly, is that you pray to the Holy Spirit, and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to have the mind of Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the deep things of God. You know, one of the things I think that is missing in in many churches, and I want to encourage this in you all, is that when you pray, pray to the triune God. We pray to the Father. Maybe you pray to Jesus. But many of us never pray to the Holy Spirit. We never say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand this. Holy Spirit, will you reveal this to me. Will you give me wisdom? Will you give me comfort and peace? You see, we believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think one of the ways that you have the mind of Christ is that you pray to the Holy Spirit. You ask the Holy Spirit to help you think like Jesus, live like Jesus, the life of Jesus. You We say all the time in the church that we're to be Christ-like well, the Holy Spirit helps you to do that, and so I'd, I'd encourage you in that. All right, we got time for one or two more. Okay. All right, maybe we should just like go like full like full throttle for one of the last ones. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Um, why would God send a good person to hell, who did not sin on Earth? but for the one sin of not believing in him while he, she was alive on earth because they did not have sufficient proof of God's existence. And in light of all the unchecked and unresolved evil, sin, murder, and death on earth without God's direct intervention. There's a lot there. I'm going to keep it right here for reference. Um, okay, so I think there's kind of two parts to this question. Um, the first part is dealing with a very common um, question of the Christian faith, and that is why why or how would a good God who's all-powerful and all-knowing allow suffering in the world? So that's kind of the second part, which is um, in light of all the unchecked and unresolved evil sin, murder, and death on earth without God's direct intervention, like why is God not intervening in these things, and yet for some reason God is sending good people um, to hell for the sin of not believing in him, and Kind of side B of that is also that they didn't maybe didn't have sufficient proof of God's existence. Okay, so um, first part, which is the all of the um, evil and suffering and sin in the world, how can a good God allow that to happen and not uh, intervene? Uh, there's a lot of great answers for that, and a lot of great things to work through and to process. Um, but you're going to have to find out the answer to that on Tuesday night. Uh, because that will take a long time to talk about here in this section. So I'm going to put that on the side, okay? Let me deal with the, f- the first part. Um, the first part is God sending good people to hell, especially those that don't maybe have sufficient proof. Well, one, in Romans chapter 1, it tells us that, you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or it tells us that we are without excuse because we see God in creation. We see God in the world. We see God in the way that Uh, The very fact that we are alive in this earth, and so we are without excuse. Uh, In fact, so much of our soul is bent towards the the question of, is there a God? That's why the vast majority, I think it's 96% of the people in the world, believe that there is some sort of God. And to disbelieve in God, which is atheism, is an active faith to believe that there is no God. So there's been something rooted in civilization since its very beginning. If you trace history all the way back to as far back as you can go, we have, as human beings have, have always searched after the existence of God. By looking up in the stars, is why when you go and you see a sunset or you go somewhere outside of Miami where you can actually see the stars, it's amazing. It causes you to say, how are we here I do also think that the more that we advance in science, the more that we realize that there has to be a creator. There is an intelligent one who created us. And so I I think that that's wired within us and that all people sense that. Now, some people say, okay, that may be true, but what if they've never heard the gospel? What if they're like, you know, a, a people group that's in the middle of nowhere and they've never had a missionary come to them? I think that's a good question. That's a hard question to wrestle with. Um, does, does God still send those people that never heard of Jesus um, to hell? I would, I would say, I don't know. What I would say is that I know that the only way that you come to the Father is through Jesus. He says that himself, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. But I also know that God works in ways that I can't possibly imagine. For instance, the Apostle Paul comes to faith not by somebody evangelizing to him, but by God meeting him on a road to Damascus as a, as a bright light. So I do believe that the grace of God is bigger than the way that I try to limit it, and that God can meet people in ways and places that I can't even fathom. And he gives Jesus to them, and Jesus directly shows them the truth of who he is. I mean, the apostle Paul was saved on that road to Damascus, and it wasn't because anyone said anything. It's because God met him. So I think that's maybe answers the side B of it. The first part about why would God send a good person to hell. So There's two parts to that. You said send a good person to hell, and then you also said they didn't sin on earth except for one sin. So I also, I believe that we sin more than one way. We sin like a million ways. Uh, We're, from the very time that we're born, if you have children, you know this, um, you don't have to teach your kids to be bad. Like, they just know to be bad, you know. They just know to do the exact opposite of what you tell them. They, they know, you know, how to push boundaries. And we, that's just wired within us. We're just born this kind of duplicitous creature of like good and bad, and we constantly go between those things. So I think that all humans are full of a multi, multitude of sins. Um, I also believe that God is perfectly holy and pure, meaning there is no sin within him. And so the, the analogy that I use sometimes is like if I'm, if I'm making a batch of cookies, which I don't know how to do, but imagine if I knew how to make a batch of cookies and I'm making it and I know that you put eggs in it and you're watching me. I'm cracking eggs and I'm putting eggs in. I'm making chocolate chip cookies, you know, which are my favorite. And then I take one egg and I crack it. You're watching and the egg is rotten. Put it in. I'm like, it's just one. The other 14 were good. You know what I mean? So it's going to be all right. So I mix it around you know, and then I make the cookies and I put it into the oven and I pull it out. I'm like, here, here are the cookies I made for you. Are you going to eat them? Now, if you like cookies as much as me, you may say yes. Okay, you're like, oh. take the risk. But most likely you're not going to eat them because the one rotten egg ruined the whole batch. It's not like it just kind of got segmented somewhere. It, it went throughout the entirety of that mixture and it ruined it. It made it harmful or dangerous to eat. And I think this is the same thing with us, right? Like the reason that God cannot mix with us in our sinful state before we receive the forgiveness and love of Jesus who died for our sins is because if you think, okay, well, maybe this person only has like this much sin and that person has that much sin. So this person with a lot of sin, they should, it's fine with, they go to hell, no problem. But this person, they only have a little bit. The problem is, it doesn't matter how many rotten eggs you have. One rotten egg in the batch will ruin the whole bunch. And it doesn't mix. Purity and impurity cannot mix at all, regardless of how impure your judgment of that person is. And so that's the necessity of Jesus. And I also think, too, that God does not send people to hell. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that people choose hell, and God allows them to have their choice. You see, God gives you what you want. If you come and you seek after Jesus and you, give, you surrender in faith to God and you receive the grace of God and the salvation of God, guess what God gives you? What you want. That willing spirit that the, that the Holy Spirit has established in you, which is salvation, eternity with God, where you praise him forever. The greatest joy you could ever experience. But if you don't want God and you want nothing to do with him and you run away from him, he gives you what you want, which is an eternity separated from him, where he is not in the place that you are. You see, sometimes we think of hell as some, like God sending people to some type of like, you know, fiery judgment, you know, with like chains and stuff. You see the pictures, Dante's Inferno. But hell is just the absence of God. It is a place where God is not. And if that's what you want, that's what God gives you. And that, that feels like hell because the only reason that we're making it through this earth even amidst all the difficulty and struggle within it is because God is active in this world and he's active within his people and his church and he's moving and he's binding the devil that is seeking to destroy and so I hope that helps a little bit and that's great there's okay you guys are going to be mad at me because you guys like it was like six questions and then you just started, like, flowing. Um, so for the, for the sake of time, um, we're going to end there on this Q&A. But here's what we're going to do. We, uh, coming up on Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday, 7 p.m., right here in the back, we have something called At the Table. Now, this is formerly known as Team Night. But we've rebranded, and we're calling it At the Table, and that is because if you've never been before, I, I had some people tell me, well, I, I'm not really on a team, so I can't, um, I shouldn't go to team night, you know? Well, this, this night at the table is for everybody because what we do is we gather together right there in the back lobby at 7 p.m. We have a few light refreshments, and then we sit down and we just talk. We ask questions and we move through these questions. And what I've, I'm committed to do is tomorrow or Tuesday night at 7 p.m. right in the back, is to go through the rest of these questions. So if you sent yours in, you know, make your schedule open, be here on Tuesday night, and we're going to go through these, and it's not going to just be me talking. That's not what I want to do. It's going to be us talking. Now, if you don't want to talk, you don't have to say anything. Don't worry, no one's going to put any pressure. But it's going to be us dialoguing together through some of these questions that cause us confusion and doubt because we're meant to process these. We need to process these, and and maybe you feel a little bit frustrated that I couldn't get to all of them tonight, but we're going to get to them on Tuesday. But the reason I wanted you to bring these up is because these are the type of things that cause blocks in our faith, in our spiritual walk. They cause confusion and doubt, and so therefore it causes spiritual weakness, which then opens us up to temptation. In the same way it did with Peter, James, and John, as they had this confusion around Jesus, which... Gave them spiritual weakness. They had a willing spirit, but their flesh was weak, and they gave in to temptation. And I think as the church, we're meant to process these things together. And so I hope you'll join us on Tuesday at 7 p.m. Or I hope you'll bring these to your small group or to your friend or your text somebody this week and say, hey, can we get coffee or can we get lunch? I, I want to go through a question that God brought to me on Sunday night. Process it with you a little bit. Uh, it's what we're meant to do as the church. And so let me close with what happens here in the second half of this passage in Mark 14. So Jesus tells them to, uh, to go with him, to rise and to keep going because, because the betrayer is at hand. So they go, all the disciples are now joined and Judas comes and he hugs Jesus and gives him a kiss and he tells that the soldiers and the religious leaders who are there, the one that I kiss is Jesus arrest him. Imagine the tension, right? Judas looking at Jesus, embracing him and giving him a kiss, a betrayer's kiss. Now, in this moment, something interesting happens. Peter wakes up. Peter can't stay awake three times to pray. But now that there's hostility and conflict, he wakes up. And when he wakes up, he grabs a sword and he cuts the ear off of one of the soldiers. See, now he's ready to fight. This is his, I snoozed the alarm clock earlier, but now I'm ready. And Jesus stops everything. He stops everything, and he takes that ear that was cut off, and he touches the man, the soldier, and he heals his ear. And he says to the disciples, and to also everyone listening, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. This is not the Father's will. If it were so, I would ask the Father to send 12 legions of angels who would come down and defend. But it is the Father's will for me to drink the cup of judgment and death. And So Jesus brings healing to this man. You see, what Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us is that his kingdom is different. The kingdom of God is different than the way that we establish these small kingdoms in the world and the kingdoms that we encounter and exist within. Oftentimes, the kingdom of God will elevate what is ignored and will ignore what is elevated. Listen to what this biblical scholar, Michael Wilcox, says. He says, Christians will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. We will pity, we will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. We will elevate what is ignored and we will ignore what is elevated. This is the way of the kingdom. And I was thinking this week about the way of the kingdom and God's kingdom. And I was asking myself, what is elevated in our culture that we're to ignore in terms of the status that it's given. Well, there's a lot of things we could name. Money and recognition and success. But one of the things that jumped out to me this week that I think has dramatically risen in terms of how it's been elevated in our society in the past couple years is power. Worldly power. Positional power. And what, what I want to say mainly is, is positioning or powerful positioning Here's what I mean by powerful positioning. It is establishing your opinions and yourself and your positions with power. This is elevated. Do whatever it takes to establish yourself and your opinions and your positions with power. Power in the form of violence, like many of us saw and mouth open at the Oscars last week. Power in the form of verbal assault, like every comment section in social media. Power in the form of character assassination. Looking to cancel somebody that's disagreeable to you so that you can more further establish your position with power. It's elevated. What's ignored? Many things. I wrote a few things down. I think patience is ignored. Humility is ignored. Ironically, Open-mindedness is ignored now in our culture. Charity, loving your neighbor, especially if they have different opinions and positions than you, ignored. You see, culture is looking for a fight. But the kingdom of God is looking to befriend. Culture is looking to establish positions powerfully And the kingdom of God is looking to share positions lovingly. Culture is looking to polarize people. And the kingdom of God is pursuing people. It is the opposite of what is elevated so many times. And I believe what Jesus is saying to us in this passage and in this moment in our time in our history is that we need to wake up. Like he says to Peter, James, and John three times, you need to wake up, you need to pray because you may have a willing spirit, but your flesh is weak and it's going to lead you into temptation. We need to wake up and we need to put down our sword. That's oftentimes the moment that we wake up, and this is in the church too. We're spiritually asleep in these other places. We don't understand the importance and the spiritual weight of certain moments and, and arenas and opportunities, but we wake up when there's a fight when there's conflict or hostility and okay now I'm ready it's not the way of the kingdom it's to wake up and put down your sword to take love and not hate to seek inclusivity and not exclusivity it's why we say that you can belong here before you believe we want you to know that you're welcome here even if you don't believe to this community and this church to take humility and not pride to take greed or charity and not greed. You see, Jesus' mission in the way of the kingdom is to heal and not to kill. It is to heal and not to kill. It is to heal and not to fight. It is laying hands on the very people that want to harm and destroy the kingdom and bringing healing. Jesus heals the, 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 the ear of a soldier who's there to arrest him. How are we meant as the kingdom of God to engage people that are in hostility with our faith? Fight them? No, heal them. Lay hands of healing. So I pray that we would seek spiritual clarity and we would pray for spiritual strength. Jesus is leading a revolution. He's leading a revolution, but it's not a revolution of us seeking to establish our positions powerfully. It's not that type of revolution. That may be other revolutions in our world. That may be the small kingdoms of this world. But the kingdom of God is a revolution that Jesus is leading that has these things that are a part of it. Powerful prayer. Powerful prayer. Powerful patience and the powerful promises of God. And when God's people wake up and put down their sword and say the kingdom of God is awakening me to powerful prayer, powerful promises of God and powerful patience. guess what you find? Powerful people. Powerful people to bring healing. We are living in a culture and a time of great hostility. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. But we're meant to be looking to heal and not to fight. To heal and not to kill. To put down our sword and extend hands of healing. You see, God's powerful people, which I believe that we are because we have the Holy Spirit within us, God's powerful people are meant to bring powerful healing in 2022. I believe that. Powerful healing to friends, to people in the city, to coworkers, to neighbors, to culture. We're meant to engage culture convicted and courageous and Christ-like. But we don't do that by saying, I'm going to establish my position powerfully. No, no, no. I'm going to be committed to powerful prayer and powerful patience and the powerful promises of God, knowing that when I do, I am a powerful person because the spirit is active and living within me. And I might bring powerful healing whenever God gives me the opportunity. I pray that we would be that type of church. Will you pray with me? God, as we come to you now, you're powerful people, not because we have the ability within us, it's not because we are powerful in our own strength, it's because you are powerful. God, I pray that you would wake us up to the places that we are spiritually asleep, where we have confusion. Would you wake us up to the reality of who you are in your kingdom? Would you give us answers as we seek you in prayer, and in your word, as we commit to your people, as we bear one another's burdens, as we listen and process with each other through our doubts? Would this be a safe place for that to happen? And would we be courageous people willing to share? God, I pray that you would bring spiritual clarity and spiritual strength so that we might be your people, moving by the Spirit, bringing